0: Good morning. It's great to be here. Uh, for those who didn't meet me last night, my name is Tim. I'm a vicar over in Shrewsbury. Um, Shrewsbury, whatever. And um, we've, uh, we've gone through 1 Peter in our own church um, from Easter to summer. And um, it's been one of my favourite letters um, of the New Testament for, for a long time. And so what I want to do for you this morning, the two sessions, is, is give two talks which are kind of overviews of the letter. Because you're about to start a sermon series. About, I'm, I'm doing, tomorrow's talk is the introduction to the letter. And then you've got a, you've got a privilege of a 1 Peter sermon series coming up. So I don't want to look at one particular passage, because whoever's on the rota for that week will be thinking, oh, Tim's taken all the points, or whatever it is. So if you do have a Bible, there'll be a little bit of flicking back and forth. But if, if you find that a bit tricky, just listen in, okay? Um, the passage for this one uh, that Emily just read, um, that's kind of the anchor. But we'll be looking a bit more broadly across the whole letter. So we pray? Father, thank you for this wonderful letter. And we pray, Lord, that because we've tasted that the Lord is good, we we know your goodness. We know how we have tasted and seen that you are full of kindness and love towards us. So I pray that we would crave, like newborn children, crave to know you more. So please turn our hearts to, to you. Open our ears to your word. And then transform our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So in the two talks. The first talk is about what is... Um, 1 Peter shows us what Jesus brings together. What he unites. And the second one will be about what Jesus divides. If I describe two people. Imagine you saw a couple. Uh, been married a couple of years and you said... Yeah, I, never, I don't know how they ever got together. They're like chalk and cheese. It's a phrase, isn't it, that says they are so very different, and yet they've been brought together. And Peter brings together, or shows us rather that Jesus brings together uh, things that look like they are opposite. And, and it's not that Peter's doing that, it's that Peter has learned. Remember how, how awkward Peter gets things wrongly in, in the Gospel, in Mark's Gospel. He's learned his lesson. When, when, when Jesus talked about the cross in Mark 8, Peter says, no, 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 no way. But now when it comes to his letter, Peter rejoices and builds everything on the foundation of Christ crucified and risen. I think the, the reading we had, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, are the, the theological centre of the whole letter. And Peter describes Jesus as the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So Jesus is both rejected and precious. In verse 6, we see some people trust in him. Others, verse 7, reject him. But God approves of him. To God, Jesus is chosen and precious. And we see this, don't we, in the cross and resurrection. The cross is where Jesus is rejected by the world. Jew and Gentile unite to scorn him, abuse him, hurl insults at him and kill him. So he's rejected by the world. Now of course we know this was God's plan. There Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So in that rejection. Amazing good was happening. And therefore in the resurrection. God vindicates his precious son. In the resurrection Christ who had been rejected is now honoured by God. Christ goes into heaven to sit at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus submitted to Pontius Pilate, to the governors, to the, to the cross. But now he's been glorified with all things in all creation submitting to him. So in 1 Peter we see that Jesus Brings together suffering and glory. Suffering and glory seem like complete opposites, don't they? But Jesus, by his death and resurrection, brings the two together. He he welds them together. So he can't separate them anymore. Rejected by the world, but honoured by God. Crucified, but risen. Suffering, but glorified. And Jesus now is full of life and honour and glory. And the fact that suffering and glory are tied together means that the path to life, honour and glory is suffering, rejection and death. There's only one way to the glory it's the path of suffering. But if you're on the path of suffering, it means destination is glory. He's tied these two things together permanently. So when the church, as God's chosen people, are experiencing suffering, rejection and death, God is at that process, in that moment, in the process of bringing us to life, honour and glory. Jesus unites suffering and glory. So that when we suffer, we are more confident of glory and we cling to the promise of glory to come. Jesus is the living stone. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So when we come to him, as we are this morning, we come to him, the living stones. We are now living stones. And therefore we too will be rejected by the world, but we live as the, those chosen by God and precious to him. Let's look at the way that this suffering and glory theme runs through the, the whole letter. So if you're, a, if you're a Bible follower, get your fingers warmed up. Let's go. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Has that praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his great mercy and living hope, our wonderful inheritance, that can never perish, spoil or fade. It's absolutely fantastic truth there. And verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There is suffering. But these have come so that, just like gold is refined by fire, our faith is being refined in the suffering to result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The suffering and trials of this life are leading to praise, glory and honour. Chapter 1, verse 11. Peter says, remember the Old Testament, all those prophets? What were they writing about? The spirit of Christ in them was pointing out, verse 11, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And the Old Testament prophets, they knew the Messiah would suffer and enter into glory and they were like, when's it going to happen? When's the time? What would be the precise circumstances? Is it soon? Is it later? But they knew that they were speaking to a future generation on the far side of the suffering and glory of the Messiah. So the Old Testament is the foundation for for this this bringing things together in Jesus. Chapter 2 verse 12, which we've had read already. Live such good lives among the pagans in the world that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, there's the suffering. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. As we do good like Christ, we will suffer like Christ, be accused like Christ, but it's leading to glory. Chapter 2 20 to 21. Peter's writing to, to slaves here. But he's writing to slaves as model Christians. And he says, halfway through verse 20, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So you'll be beaten up, you might be harmed or might suffer, but God says that is commendable, that is good, that is worthy of honour. To this you were called because Christ Suffered for you. Leaving an example that should follow in his steps. The glory word isn't used there, but we see that that the call to suffering is a call that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? As a general rule, if you do good, people like that. But of course, it's not always the case. Verse fourteen: Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Suffering and being blessed are brought together. Chapter three, seventeen and eighteen. Again, we see this: the, 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 Jesus is the is the one in whom they're brought together. So. Verse 17, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In his suffering, great glory comes because we're brought to God. And the passage goes on through some very tricky verses about Noah's Ark. Uh, to Jesus at God's right hand and angels' authorities and powers in submission to him. So Jesus' path of suffering leads to his vindication, his triumph, his authority over all things. And we, joined to Jesus, will follow the same path. Chapter 4, verse 12. This is why those journal Bibles are great. because You can just flick around and, and you know, the pages are all close to each other. And you, you and your thin-page Bibles, you're like, oh, God to Jude already, it's too far. <laughs> Uh, but chapter 4, verse 13, do not, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You're joined to Jesus, you're so, so suffering and fiery ordeal, that's not strange. Verse 13, but rejoice, for inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then he goes on, it's not just that it's suffering now and therefore there's glory in the future. No, it's even more closely tied together. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Maybe you're at school or college and the word gets out that you're a Christian. And there's an awkward conversation perhaps about what you believe and don't believe. And maybe your name is insulted. In that very moment, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You might not feel like that, but it's true. And the spirit of glory and God rests on you in that moment of suffering, in part to comfort, strengthen you, and in part for God to say, I am with you. And in part to reassure you, because the Spirit loves to join things together. The Spirit loves to bring unity. So even as you're insulted, even as you are pushed to the side, the Spirit is joining you to glory and to God. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. Just to see two couple more references. uh, Peter writes to the elders... I appeal as a fellow fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And he says to elders that when you serve your people that you receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. That's in verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 10. Really, this is the last reference. Um, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Glory is ahead. There is suffering, but that's the process by which God makes us strong, firm, and steadfast. So Jesus, in his person, in his death and resurrection, he brings together suffering and glory. He is the living stone The foundation of the temple, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And so we built on Christ, coming to him as living stones ourselves. We will be rejected. There will be suffering. But we are also chosen by God and precious to him with glory, the spirit of glory on us now and glory to be revealed when Jesus comes back. This is the suffering of the normal world, this is the suffering of being a follower of Jesus, more of that in the next section. But Jesus unites suffering and glory and spot that theme in the coming weeks at church. Secondly, Jesus unites ordinary life with God's amazing purposes. We might think of ordinary life, that's you know, getting out, brush your teeth, look after the kids, do some work, come home, do the chores, go to bed. That's ordinary life. And then there's God's amazing purposes. And they're like, well, in chapter 2, verse, um, which verse was it? Verse 12. Live such good lives that the world, though they accuse you of doing wrong, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits visit us, live such good lives. We are, we are the chosen people of God with this extraordinary calling to be part of God's eternal purposes. So there's normal life, isn't there? The brushing the teeth, the chores, the looking after children, the grandchildren, the, they're just going around with aches and pains and hardship. And then maybe now and again you dip into the, the, the good stuff, the, the, the such good lives. You you know, Maybe you Mother Teresa looks at you with impressed eyes at uh, your dedication to working in the slum. Or maybe Billy Graham thinks, man, I wish you could preach like you guys. And it feels, doesn't it, like God's amazing purposes must be something different from ordinary life. But no, Peter brings the two together. Yeah, there are, and those who are called to extraordinary things. Those on this site. There are those who are called to to move location, to go into situations that the rest of us would be terrified by. And there are, you know, Peter himself was an apostle; he travelled the world, suffering and preaching the gospel. But what he's doing in his letter isn't saying you must all be like me in doing extraordinary things. Rather, your ordinary life is where God's extraordinary plan can can be advanced. He brings together. Ordinary life with God's great purposes. So Peter says, live such good lives. And then he tells us what they that, that, what it means. Chapter 2, verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 12 is the good life that he describes for us. You might be able to see on the page... Um, he talks to submitting to human authorities. That's life as citizens in our country. He talks to slaves, submit to your master. He talks to. He spends a lot of time on that. He speaks to wives, chapter three, verse one. He speaks to husbands, chapter three, verse seven. And then he says, finally, all of you. He's talking about our character. So the, the, the such good life that shows we are the, the holy priesthood of God. There's such good life that, is, that, that flows out of our calling to be God's special possession. That such good life is worked out in the context of ordinary life in the country. Slaves suffering, maybe workplace application there. Husbands and wives and, and our character and our relationship with each other. That's where God's extraordinary plans are worked out. I remember noticing this in, um, in Ephesians some years ago. Remember how Ephesians starts off with those three chapters which are kind of, God's eternal purposes are to bring all things together in Christ. Amazing, grand, the church is there to display God's glory to the angelic beings and go, Wow! What's church all about then? What's God's amazing plan for us? And he says, right, husbands, wives, parents, children. You go, is that it? Is that it, Pe- uh, Paul in Ephesians? Is that it, Peter? Where's the impressive stuff? He says, ordinary life, that's where the impressive stuff takes place. You'll go into this section in, in more detail in your sermon series, but let me just show you um, I'm not going to preach all those verses, chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 3, verse 12, in one go uh, now. But let's just look, dip into it to see how, in ordinary life, we see glimpses of God's amazing purposes coming through. So, chapter 2, verse 17 show proper respect to everyone. Literally, honour everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. It's interesting that Peter says, honor everybody, and that includes the emperor. The, the rulers, the, the, the power in his time. So he's not saying, so he does say, submit to your to the rulers, to the, the those who have all the power, but you honor them like everybody else. Peter is saying to a society where the, the great and the good thought they were a league apart from the the normal folk. Peter is saying, "No, no, they are just normal folk. They've got a particular calling. If they're the emperor, submit to them, but honor them just as you do everybody else." He's kind of bringing them down, and he says, "Honor everybody." He's lifting up the lowly. So, in as as we honor one another, God's great plan of bringing unity is taking place. is bringing down. The, 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 the powerful, to a position of honour, but just regular honour. And those who have nothing, he's raising up to a position of honour. Matthew Parris um, was an MP, um, he's an atheist, and he wrote an article some years ago saying, why I, as an atheist, believe that Africa needs Christianity. And he describes those parts of um, Africa that he knew as a a, child or young adult. And where Christianity is spread, people, they respected the the, the leaders, but they didn't cringe at their leaders. They didn't treat the leaders as the best and the greatest to be worshipped and obeyed at all costs. The Christian regions where the gospel has spread kind of brought down the big people to a normal level and lifted up the lowly. Early Christians were renowned in the Roman Empire for honouring the unborn and the newborn, often literally cast aside in the Roman world. Christians honoured the weakest, the frailest, the youngest, and they honoured the elderly and the frail. I really think one of our biggest mission fields as church must be the nursing homes, the care homes. Where so often people are just a little bit pushed to the side and we need to be there saying we honour you. So in our honouring, normal stuff, God's eternal purposes are being fulfilled. I'm looking at the time, well, I'll keep going for a few more minutes. Um, Peter writes to slaves, slaves. Submit yourself to your masters. And he says, well, what's remarkable here is that Peter is writing to the slaves. And he says, you slaves, you are model Christians. Live as God's slaves, verse 16. And slaves are the one who are explicitly told you have a calling to follow Christ. So, Peter is giving to slaves a dignity that nobody else gave them. You ever heard of Aristotle, great philosopher, one of the giants of Western thought? He said, slaves can't really suffer. Because if you kick a rock, it doesn't suffer, does it? If you kick a slave, it doesn't really suffer. It's too low to really suffer. Now that seems utterly absurd to us because Christianity has had such a big impact on the world. There are lots of people writing to masters in the Roman world saying, Make sure your slaves behave this way. Peter is the only one who writes to the slaves to say, You have the dignity of being people in your own right with moral choices. With the ability to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The very fact he's writing to slaves lifts them up to a position of honor and importance. God's eternal purpose, to draw near to the brokenhearted, to draw near to the lowest of the low, is taking place even as slaves are told to submit. Because God is giving them the dignity. Of having a calling, even in that terrible situation. And then Peter writes to, to wives, and then you, know, you can preach multiple sermons on, on these verses for wives and husbands, but let me just again just show you one little insight to way in, in ordinary life God's eternal purposes are taking place. He, he says to wives, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, Peter's already said that this world is perishing, spoiling and fading. This world is fading away. But in Christ, We have an inheritance that will never fade. Christ is precious to God, and in Him we become precious to God, and we have an unfading hope. And He uses that sort of language, those phrases, as He speaks to the wives. Don't let your value or worth be determined by the fading trends of the day. Whether it's elaborate hairstyles or gold jewelry or fine clothes. No, you can have an unfading beauty. A beauty which is of great worth in God's sight. Your inner character. A gentle and quiet spirit. So he's saying to wives, who particularly in that culture were very much down second class, he's saying, you can participate in the unfading glory of God's kingdom. By the way, you refuse to take part in the the fading trends of society around you. In a subtle way, in a very ordinary way, he's giving women and wives here the dignity of being like Jesus. Great worth in God's sight and an unfading beauty. It's all the language of Jesus now applied to wives here. And of course, in the process, he's saying to men, he's saying to men, don't objectify women. Don't just come treat them instantly based on appearances. Now, they're of great worth in God's sight. And then he speaks to husbands. And now, these are the, this verse is one which, just to read this in public, would probably get you, you know, a lot of trouble. And to say, uh, husbands, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner. Some of you immediately go, don't like that phrase. If you saw um, what does he mean? The the phrase is literally weaker vessel. Why is that significant? Because it takes on a, a particular meaning in the context of the letter. Imagine um, Paul's back from York and you, you pass Paul and I talking in the corridor and you hear Paul say to me, I think we need to organise, need to arrange a service. You immediately think we're planning some sort of church event, don't you? Music, hymns, prayers and so on. Now imagine you walk past me and I'm by a car and the boot is open, or the bonnet's open rather, and there's a guy with the blue overalls and oily hands saying, I think we need to arrange a service you now think of something different, don't you? You think the car needs servicing. The same phrase, we need to arrange a service, well, the word service has a variety of meanings, and it takes its meaning from the the context. So when Peter describes wives as weaker vessels, in the context of lots of language about the temple, he's thinking about Vessels in the temple, the Old Testament temple. The vessels that stores the important gifts and material used for the temple. And when he describes them as weaker vessels, well, let me ask you this. Um, do you, Hands up if you have a home, have a, a set of really fine china. Anybody have that? No chance. Some of you don't have that. Um, does that get used when there's lots of children around? No. And it's who's it for? It's for the best guests, isn't it? So some of you will have... There's the plastic cups that the children have. You can can hold them from a a great height. They're not going to break at all. They're pretty strong. And there's the weaker, more precious things that come out for the best occasions. The temple had the clay pots, the stone jars for the ordinary stuff, but had more precious vessels made of silver and gold. They were weaker but used for the most holy parts of the temple. And Peter's saying, husbands, treat your wives, Now they might be physically weaker than you, that's kind of an average average statement, Um, but treat them like the weaker vessel, like those parts of the temple, the weaker vessels, the gold and silver ones used for the most sacred functions of all. So Peter is saying, husbands, you can, you can be part of God's amazing purposes by treating your wives as the most precious part of God's amazing temple. That's why if husbands don't do it, their prayers are going to be hindered because God's holy vessels are being mistreated. And it's amazing that in the the Greek world, it's assumed that the most holy, sacred people, well, that's Caesar, that's Julius Caesar. Um, And Peter says, no, 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 Um, wives, you can be the most sacred vessels in God's temple. Husbands, treat your wives like that. So in these little different ways, Peter is saying, ordinary life can be injected and fused with glimpses of God's eternal purposes. So when we're weak or despised or without power, we can be like Christ at the cross where God's plan is brought into being. So in our normal life, even in suffering, weakness, shame, even in powerlessness, even in the small things, ordinary life can be brought together with God's amazing purposes to declare Christ's cross to the wider world. So, the foundation of all things is, is Jesus. Jesus who is rejected but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus who, in his weakness and suffering and sorrow, is the location of God's eternal purposes. And Peter wants to show us that in Christ these things, opposites, are brought together. In Christ, suffering and glory are brought together. So, if we're suffering, we know glory is coming. And in Christ, ordinary life and God's purposes are brought together so that in ordinary, boring life live for Jesus. We might know that God's plans flowing from the cross might advance toward the world. Let's pray, Lord, help us to build our lives on Jesus the living stone. So that as your people, in our lives, we might live as those who know suffering and glory brought together, ordinary life and your purposes brought together as we walk the way of the cross. May your goodness flow to the world and your glory be revealed. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you very much, Tim. Um, isn't it really encouraging that in ordinary, everyday, boring life, God's impressive purposes are being worked out? I think that's really, really encouraging and it's been great to, to get insight into that this morning. So thanks, Tim. <laughs> and uh, we can continue to get insight into all that as we chat to one another over coffee now. Um, so coffee's going to be served in the kitchen area next door, just at the end of the sort of kitchen, just before you um, get into where all the... Um, Dishwashers are and all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, coffee's gonna be in there now. Uh, we've got uh, yeah about three quarters of an hour to enjoy one another's company, uh, to to talk, um, and to enjoy coffee and I think cake as well. But biscuits. biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you. If you are um, someone who has children in Mini Lighthouse or Lighthouse, now is the time to go and relieve Anna and <laughs> Michael. Can you wear a uniform. Yeah, that's it. We, we always, we always coordinate. always me. Did you stop it? Did Tim stop it? Do you know what? Did you I, stop I, the it? I haven't Tim